Welcome to a new episode of the Art Business Podcast. <clears throat> My guest today is Anders Pettersson, who probably doesn't need an introduction to most of you. Uh, he's founder and managing director of Art Tactic Limited, which is a London-based art market research and advisory company, which Anders set up in 2001. And Anders' general interests are in big data, art market data, in art market analysis and the tools for that analysis, in art investment, art and finance, art and technology, and the online art market. Anders is also a um, much uh, respected consultant and has been for many years for the MA Art Business uh, in Sotheby's Institute of Art in London. And um, Anders, I, it's, it's interesting this one because most of the people on the podcast have come from art history and moved into either artistic practice or more often art business, but I think you're coming from the financial world and have moved into art business. But but as ever, anyway, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, and uh, as ever, I'm going to just start by uh, uh, giving the listeners some 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 insight into your 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 lifestyle and your 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 um, preferences and so on. So um, we, we begin with what's your favourite city and why? Well, that's an interesting one. I, <clears throat> I think it depends a little bit, but I, I, I like, I mean, over the last uh, 10 years, I, I've grown very fond of uh, Lisbon. Um, and I don't know exactly why. I think it's, it's, it's partly, I think it's the size, it's the energy, um, it's the closeness it has to the sea. Uh, it's still in, the, in Europe. Um, and um, it's one of the places that we, we spend more and more time in the last, yeah, since the last 10 years. And then... So that's probably one of my current favorites, but there's there's so many different places in the world that we that, that I've been traveling to uh, either through work and um, if we go to Asia, I, I places like uh, Mumbai, which for a lot of people might not be their favorite city. For me, it's one of the kind of incredible energy and and uh, juxtaposition between obviously rich and poor, but it has something which I think that is unique. Um, and and every time I'm there, I'm, I'm I, I really love it. So. Um, there and then I can probably mention hundreds of other cities, but but those two probably just brings to mind right now. Yeah, it's always a really difficult question. I hate people asking me what my favorite anything yeah. is because um, I tend to answer. You know, it depends on the mood. Yeah, really. exactly. And there's so many cities. They all have. I think the common thing about cities that one likes is they have a kind of amazing energy yeah. that, that that invigorates you when you're there in different exactly. ways. Um, and tends to also be the, probably the last city maybe you visited <laughs> that sticks sticks absolutely in your mind. Yeah. I, I'm afraid I've never been to Lisbon. It's certainly on my list of places to go. Yeah, it's really nice. Um, and and like likewise, do you like the getting out of the city to the countryside or the or the seaside? And if so, can you think of a favourite place? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I sort of grew up in Norway, which is in a rural area, and I I I'm still very drawn to nature. And I think still when I when I when I escape the city to I mean even in living in London for most of my adult life I think you know getting getting out of London going to the Lake District or the Peak District etc is probably my favorite but I think if I was to uh, and I go back to Norway and when I go back to Norway just to be able to kind of be in the nature and go for walks etc is still something which is uh, I think is very healthy for my mind at least and probably for others as well. I guess the Lake Districts you probably like in England because it might remind you a little bit of Norway yeah, because of the lakes as opposed to the fjords. Definitely. And, and again, the Norwegian fjords is something that I've always wanted to do. Hopefully one day I will do. Yeah, you should. Sure. And you like hiking, you like sort of walking, like country yeah. walking. Yeah, we, yeah, we do a lot of hiking and it's, uh, again, it's just that sort of the thing of, of, of just walking. I mean, I think your mind just goes into sort of a, a state of peacefulness, you know, it's just you I and the nature. Totally agree. Yeah. Um, in a yeah. busy life we live, I think it's... Um, yeah. yeah, for me, it's a, it's a must. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and then architecture, can you think of a building that really inspires you somewhere? It doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to be contemporary or modern. It could be an older building. Yeah, well, I'm actually, I'm just thinking about that. I, I, I recently, uh, well, been, been back to Oslo, and Oslo has actually changed uh, enormously since I left in the early 90s, um, particularly in terms of architecture with the new opera uh, house in, in Oslo. Um, there is a, um, a new library, actually, the Dijkman uh, Library, which is just next to the Opera, which is an incredible building um, as a library, um, which I was really inspired when I went there um, just before Christmas uh, to see just how it was used, how many students were 
you know, sitting there doing their work, uh, but in incredible surroundings with views over the harbour area, um, the way it was laid out, the use of uh, wood in particular as a sort of a material, I think it's beautiful. Um, so I must say the, the, um, those two buildings next to each other, because basically one is overlooking the other, uh, are probably one of my, my, my favourites at the moment, just in terms of the way they sort of blend into the, uh, in, into the landscape, both in terms of the, the fjord that's going in the Oslo fjord and, and, and also how it sits in within the city itself. And today they've used sustainable material. Quite recent buildings using sustainable. Yeah, I, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the the uh, the buildings are. I mean, I think a lot of the new buildings now are built using sustainable materials. But it's also the way. I think it's. Um, I think light is an incredibly important part. Obviously, living in a in a country where, you know, most well eight months of the year where you virtually have lack of daylight um, to actually bring in light. And a lot of these buildings are really built around that sort of aspect of bringing as much light in as possible, uh, even during the sort of kind of the, the darker periods of the year. Yeah, because <clears throat> I think for listeners who don't know Scandinavia, you, they, they, we have, well, from the UK, because we sometimes yeah. watch these Scandinavian yeah. thrillers on, um, crime thrillers on, on Netflix, yeah. and the whole thing about the northern lights and the long dark nights and the yeah. long bright nights, yeah. the white nights, yeah. as they're called. Exactly. Is that something that you miss when you're in London? Or? No, I must say, I think darkness, I think the period of, I, th I found it always quite, well, probably more now that I've been out of Norway, coming back and, and, and you know, having really short days during the winter, I find that quite depressing. I mean, yeah, so that's I would imagine it is. And some Scandinavians said there's a lot of alcoholism <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think a lot of nights. people struggle with uh, you know mental health issues, but yeah. just not having access to it. And obviously, there's is a depending on if you're used to it and you're born in a in an in a in an environment where that is your day to day. That, but I, but yes, I, I think again, you know, light is incredibly important. And and coming back to architecture, I think a lot of the buildings uh, that they, are now being built, it's really about bringing as much light into bringing light, in. which brings a certain sort of aesthetics to the type of. Yeah, and you mentioned the library, Anders. Um, I've never asked this question actually on these podcasts about literature. Do you do you have any favourite authors? Um, do you do you read much, or don't you have time to read? I, I must say, I'm not. I my my I should do because my <laughs> my wife is very much in the literature world, and I I always uh, she she kind of I end up reading a lot more. Unfortunately, maybe more kind of linked to 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 what I'm doing, so it becomes more either more technical literature or literature around economics and etc. rather than, than fiction. I do I do like, but it's a bit, as you say, it's a bit of a time. I just sometimes, you know, hopefully, you know, during holiday periods is where I maybe will, I will pick up a mm -hmm. book and be able to read through it. But uh, I find it, um, yeah, unfortunately, hopefully, I wonder, something I would like to rectify. I think Same it's beautiful <laughs> to, to actually read more fiction and, and just, you know, get immersed in, 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 in that rather than always, reading, you know, reading factual yeah, material. I guess it's a kind of different form of escape um, for the mind and mental health as like walking. So I think Definitely. if you can do a lot of walking, it has Definitely. a similar effect, really. And, and, and you also spoke about the opera. Does that mean that you, you, do you go to the opera or what about music? Do you have any kind of no, music yeah. that you... Yeah, well, I'm, I guess I'm sort of an old consumer when it comes to um, music, really. And, 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 and although I like opera, it's not something I'm sort of particularly... I, a, a big uh, fan of it. It's more than just enjoying it. But I, um, I don't know. I mean, I think I sort of, I, I growing a little bit. I, I think as young, I just listened to everything that that came along. And now I'm with my younger, you know, my younger sons. I'm sort of my my um, interest in music kind of goes, you know, all the way from more classical but all the way to kind of drill music and uh, <laughs> rap so and I think I'm being introduced to new forms of music and I, I find yeah. it really interesting sometimes unwillingly yeah sometimes <laughs> unwillingly exactly. dad can we play this in the car I yeah. had that well that's a lot of that going on at the moment <laughs> exactly and, and Anders I think I think listeners will be uh, particularly particularly our students who, who've experienced your, your your finance lectures which will come on to that world in a moment obviously but they'll probably be quite interested in saying, how did this guy get into art? So can you can you remember any early art world experiences? So I, I think my kind of art, my probably my, my early foundation of interest in the art came from my parents. So my mother is a painter and my father is a furniture designer really? and an interior designer. So I think I, I grew up with seeing them at work and my other my father in the evening sitting drawing and you know whether you know, virtually every single evening and my mother painting. And I think, so that was probably where I can remember from a very young age, there was always artworks and there was, there was, of course, you know, my parents had said, uh, you know, 
creating art or creating designs. Um, so I think that lured me into it. But I think it was I was very much encouraged also, I think from a relatively early age, not to go down that route. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and I think that's probably what shaped me uh, where I am now. It's the kind of, it, it created an early foundation of an interest in art. Um, but not from a, uh, and, but at the same time, so I decided to go the kind of economics and, and, and finance route. Um, and I guess our tactic in, and what I'm doing now is a bit of a hybrid between the two. It's the kind of the economics of the market and the finance, the financial aspect of the market. But, you know, if I didn't have the art, I probably have chosen something totally different. So in a sense, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hybrid between these two these two things, one which I grew up with, but not as a profession or an academic profession, and, and, and then what I decided to do, which was more of the, the market side. So you said you moved to London in the 90s. What, what was the, may I ask, what the reason for the move was? Yeah, I, I think I always had the kind of desire to study abroad, um, and I wanted to kind of study outside Norway. Um, mm. And I think it partly became a kind of a... Um, a language thing, you know, which which I had at the time, German and English, but English was much stronger. Uh, so I thought, okay, well, we'll, we'll go to the UK. Um, and um, there was a bit of uh, sort of funding and scholarship aspects in Norway that uh, London School of Economics, which I ended up studying at, was, um, I got a scholarship for that, which just helped with the school fees and so forth. Um, and uh, and yeah, so so and, and it was a little bit of proximity, you know, not being too far from home, but still kind of being, you know, um, being away from 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 Norway. Was so, that was that the undergraduate degree at LSE? Yeah, it ended up being actually two, both undergrad and the masters, and the masters uh, I ended up studying both in uh, in in at LSE as well as um, a Saint Gallen uh, in in Switzerland. Fantastic, um, what a lovely place. So that, yeah, so it was good. It was an amazing. That's got an amazing library, hasn't it? I seem to. Remember. I've been to yes. a historical monastic library, perhaps. Yeah, it might be. And I, I mean, Maybe I, you never went there. No, I, I don't show sure if I ever managed to get to the library. Yeah. Uh, it was an incredible time. I think it was just getting out to London and. You know, you had the, the mountains and you had the, the, the skiing and everything at your doorsteps. I think probably I spent more time in the mountains than I did in the classrooms, mm. but um, it was an experience anyway. Yeah. Do you, you probably coming from Scandinavia, you ski, it's a bit of a cliche, but do you do, you do the kind of standard, the orthodox skiing or, the, or this strange sort of long distance walk skiing? Well, we, we, I, think I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, we, uh, cross, country cross country skiing. skiing. Yes. Uh, we, we, do, we do all of them. You really. <laughs> We, we, uh, I think it must be amazing for your leg muscles. Yeah, oh, it's it, it's it's. Uh, I think probably in the, in the in the early when I was younger, it was probably downhill was my favorite. But I think as I got older, I think we stand, standing in lift queues and waiting for it to get up wasn't my my ideal. And I think now it's spending most of my time doing cross country, and uh, mm -hmm. that's, it's still something I'm very fond of. We do uh, annual races, and we sort of but obviously the conditions of practicing here in the UK is a bit. Bit difficult. So they, if you see someone out on a, on a, on roller skis in Greenwich Park, you, that's probably me. Uh, <laughs> really? Yeah. That's, no, that's 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 how I keep fit. I'm trying to. Uh, trying so you to live down in, in in east of the east of the South, center of London at Greenwich. Yeah, 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 it's really nice down there. Um, and um, yeah, so the the then you actually, I was just going to rewind a little bit and say, do you, do you collect art? Do you, do you find yourself purchasing art like for your walls or little sculptures, anything like that? Yeah, I do a little bit. I mean, they're not, not uh, I, I try to stay away from the, the kind of art that I that you're, talk about yeah, and, yeah. And, the, and, and the art that we cover from a kind of a market perspective. I mean, there's two reasons. One, most of that art is out of my budget. <laughs> and, and the second thing, I think it's also kind of nice to have a, a bit of a sanctuary of, of looking at art from a perspective not looking at it from a value uh, which is a lot of the things that we do um, which means that we just we, we, if I buy I tend to buy from younger graduates uh, at graduate shows mm -hmm. and I've done that over the last 20 years it's really good but it's and it gives me that kind of freedom really not to sort of having to think too much about mm. whether they're going to succeed or not uh, but just yeah. kind of actually you know you, you 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 buy because you like it and I think that that kind of keeps me grounded. Um, I, mm. I think I need to have those two, you know. Otherwise, I, 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 I yeah. I, I need, I need that that sort of sense of um, reminding myself why yeah. am I in this world in the first place. And I think yeah. art is one of the sort of founding reasons for it. And so, from a personal level, to have that distinction between you know 
collecting from a value perspective or just collecting because you like it. I, mm. I like to keep it. Uh, but even, even so, it's not that common for someone to be going to degree shows and buying art. And I think that's really great ethically because yeah. you're supporting exactly. the, the artists that are part of the world that, you're, yeah. that is your career, as I, it were. I, and there's something nice, I think, yeah. about you know, taking a, an, an early, um, almost kind of a little bit of a stake in an artist at its early stage of the career and having the chance, hopefully, to sort of see how that career progresses. Yeah. I was going to ask, I'm sure all the listeners would be wondering, have any of those artists become even slightly big since yeah, you we, purchased well, them? Actually, some, an artist that I, I, I met very early on was a, um, uh, a Swedish um, uh, animator. So basically, she worked with animations. Uh, her name is uh, Natalie Jureberg. Um, and she, uh, I met her in about 2003, 2004, so an exhibition in Oslo, I'm sorry, in, in, in Moss, which is very close to where I live. Um, and I was just fascinated by her animations. At that point, it was sort of charcoal animations, but she's moved on to do more uh, plasticine and, and clay animations and some amazing work. Um, and she's done really well. I mean, she, she, she's now kind of represented by you know, in most museums around the world. And, but that was, you know, again, I, I didn't bought it for that purpose. I no, think there was, there was, this, was a certain aesthetic that appealed to me. It's, it's yeah. um, for those people who know the artist, it's, you know, some of the material is quite, you know, it's quite tough. It's, uh, it's sort of, um, you know, many, many people might say it's sort of grotesque in a way, but there was something with this sort of fascination of, um, I guess sort of the, 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 the Scandinavian sort of fairy tale aspect to it, which is also not very, you know, if you look, behind the sort of surface is quite sinister and quite, uh, yeah. you know, quite cruel. Yes. Um, so I think, you know, there was something in that aesthetic that sort of uh, appealed to me. So, so um, I would say animations and, and that kind of, um, I don't know, the, 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 the tactile nature of um, drawings is also, I like, I like a lot, um, uh, anything to do with charcoal drawings and people who works with sort of kind of material and works on paper. Uh, there's a certain sort of, I don't know, there's a certain, uh, there's, there's something tangible about, some, something which I, I, I really, I, I've always been fascinated by. So, so the works tends to be around kind of smaller works on paper and, 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 uh, and as I said, a couple of um, more sort of new media pieces, which, mm-hmm. um, which, which, yeah, which, I, which I love. And, and it's been great to see these artists succeed. But for those artists who, who hasn't, these still, you know, these works are still kind of memories, the small memorabilia mm-hmm. of, of my time and that that's true as well that you remember the this. time exactly. I always like getting anything that you that exactly. reminds you of yeah. something it becomes a sort of little personal uh, photo album of of your yeah. you know of your of your life in the art world for the last and, and again I'd encourage uh, all, all the listeners and, and you know especially our students that, that this is a place where you can actually go and look at really exciting emerging art in degree shows you're allowed you know if you just look them up in the different art colleges in London on their websites uh, you know they have open days and, and evenings and you can go and um, I, I, sometimes I think there aren't prices that quite often you go to these things and they're not pricing them so I was just going to ask you how do you how, how do you approach the artist and say I'm really interested in buying this work yeah I think I think the artist I mean I must say probably in comparison with the rest of the art world I think that's probably you know the artist is very forthcoming and very you know they want to they want to basically meet people so I think yeah. you know that's it's a very you don't have the intermediary of a gallery uh, you, you just virtually that sort of you know being able the proximity with the artist and being able to talk to the artist mm-hmm. so you know this is thing just get a conversation with the artist I mean they're there to ultimately yeah. show their work and yes. you know if you ask for a price it's not you know it's not going to be seen as an insult so I think it's just <clears> but I think the pleasure is to really strike a conversation and you know maybe build a kind of a you know a relationship for the artist in terms of getting to know what you know why they're doing their motivations for it they mm-hmm. and they can obviously layer uh, I think you know they, they, they create a, an incredible you know useful and, and interesting context to their work which is often might not be visible just from the kind of visual aspect so uh, I, I enjoy that bit and 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 you know as I, as I said I, I've been doing it for many years and Many of these artists have sort of stayed, uh, you know, in close contact with me throughout these years, and it's it's, it's just, um, yeah, I find it very rewarding. Mm, absolutely, and um, yeah, I mean, they can get quite just for again for for, for, for the the less experienced listeners who haven't gone and attempted to buy art at these shows, the the artists can 
they sometimes would be very embarrassed and say, oh, no one's ever asked me that yet. Mm. And they'd generally be flattered. Yeah. But they say, well, how much... I've, I've had conversations where they say, well, well, you know, could you name a price? Yeah. And I say, no, you, you, what do you think your work, your, your work, what, what do you think it's worth? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they just haven't thought about that. And, and, and I remember, I remember one, one young woman saying, um, 50 pounds? I said, look, you're really underselling yourself. Although I'm off, wanted to buy it, mm-hmm. it's worth more than that. Yeah. No, exactly. <laughs> so I said, you've got to, you, you, you don't undersell yourself. And, and, and also, you know, we tell our students this, as you know, that how do you price the first works of an emerging artist? And artists will tell you that they get a lot more success if they, over, it, yeah. if they overprice themselves, because people don't take them seriously otherwise. No, that's true. And I, I think it's probably going to shed some light on the fact that I guess most fine art degrees of people in the art schools are really not kind of taught or guided you know towards what's going to happen afterwards as soon as they graduate you know what what world it's going to absolutely they don't have any modules on art business in the art market which is of course what famously uh, goldsmiths had in the 90s when Damien Hirst one of the things he said is we were taught about the art market and other other art colleges weren't doing that there's still a lot who don't do that I think no definitely I think there's still this this uh, slight tension between the more kind of academic side of, of fine art practice and the market aspect and I think uh, which I, I'm not sure is a very healthy and useful thing I think you know to at least to, to help artists guide uh, or be able to guide them through at least the first initial hurdles of, of because obviously uh, the whole thing is trying to make a living out of what you're doing and if yeah. you don't know how to navigate the market then as we know it's, it's a rather complex space uh, with full of um, loaded uh, you know terms and, 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 and you can very easily kind of go down the, the wrong path and, and find it very difficult to kind of then enter back into the market. So I think, you know, just sort of some very basic principles of, of understanding, you know, how value and reputation is built up and how you can build a career. I think that's yeah. any artistic... And that it's nothing, exactly. it's nothing to be ashamed of. No, you know, exactly. Artists have basically been business people yeah. for all time. Exactly. And... Coincidentally, we had a session yesterday, we had the first of our introductory sessions on, um, we have an optional uh, project on MAR business, um, which we introduced around about this time of year, just before the the summer uh, period when students are researching and writing their dissertations. Um, And uh, we we basically, we we have shortlists from a couple of art prizes and um, our art business students can choose to work with some of these artists and if we put them together, and uh, they have conversations, they're usually at the same, you know, they, they can't be, none of these people can have won any prizes before. Mm-hmm. So it's quite difficult yeah. for the artists and it's difficult for some of our students who aren't, who've never worked with artists yeah. before. We put them together and then at the end of the project, uh, they, can, they can turn that into a commercial venture if they want. And several have in the past and it's become That's quite great. successful. Um, so that, that's one of the little projects. <clears throat> what I was going to say to the students listening, I know many many of you might want to do this and you weren't at the session yesterday because of deadlines and so on, but it's not too late to join that project. So get no, in touch. If you're listening to this podcast, I'm sure Anders would agree that it's a, a great way to cut your teeth. Definitely. And I think it's great. I mean, it's something that I think both parties would get an enormous amount of value out of. Absolutely. Uh... And, and, and um, for the last few years, we just worked with one art prize that I was involved with as a, as a judge. And it literally has thousands of entries from all over the world. Um, but we've introduced a new art prize, and you might even remember her, Neha Jaiswal. She's an Indian yeah, student, who was a, a student of ours a few years back, um, and she she has started this new prize for South Asian artists mm-hmm. uh, called the Art Family, mm-hmm. um, and some of her artists are are actually quite successful in working with the BNA and so on. Mm-hmm. But she said yesterday when she did her introduction, they although they're already quite successful, they're not successful commercially. Mm-hmm. And so they could do with your students to, to talk about the, 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 the art market and the art world and, and give them a lot, a lot of advice on that. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, so that would be great if we kind of expand it into those yeah, South Asian... Yeah, that sounds like an amazing initiative. <laughs> those South Asian nations. Um, and um, coming back to your... So, so when you graduated, did you go straight into a career? And what, what, yeah. what was that? So I, I, after graduation, I went straight into working in uh, investment banking. So I, I started at J.P. Morgan in Frankfurt, and I moved to uh, London. I was a um, half year in New York, um, 
and uh, that's where I spent most of my time and life, I think, for the coming you know five years. Um, and uh, it was it was a great experience. I I I think I kind of that was it was very much a generation. I think I came out of of a school where there was virtually sort of two routes: was either management consultancy or investment banking. There was everyone did the same thing. I think now for the younger generation, you have such a much a variety of um, you know job path and, and yeah, you can choose whether it's sort of going into more and it's so much more entrepreneurial and startups and tech, mm. tech companies and and so many other things that probably wasn't uh, available at the time where, when I started. But um, I so I, I chose that route and I, I did um, uh, I did enjoy it. I think the reason for leaving it, I think I had sort of a kind of a a goal in my mind that uh, when I reached certain things that I felt was, uh, um, you know, kind of milestones, um, then probably I would just do something else. Yeah. And, and that, I think, was driven by the fact that I just wanted to work for myself. Um, I think there was a, uh, you know, despite the financial incentives of being, maybe I've stayed in the city, I think there was uh, something stronger in me was that I wanted to kind of choose. I want to have the freedom of choice of what I was going to do, how I was going to do things. And I felt that that environment was quite, you know, restrictive in, 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 in terms of, and I guess any corporate environment probably is. So I decided then to um, to leave uh, leave the banking world. And, and I didn't really have a sort of a firm plan. Besides, I wanted to do something with art. Um, and I thought, okay, that this is, you know, what is my what is my sort of pathway um, and I think this is probably for other students you are in the kind of cross-section between you know, being in one industry or studied something and moving to something else is um, is that it, it's particularly if you have some working experience what I realized is instead of just sort of abandoning what I had done and saying well you know my finance background is gone I should just do something totally different I realized probably my strength and probably the way others perceive my strength would be where I came from. So I started to sort of think, okay, what can I do with my my skill sets that I had um, developed uh, in the finance industry and what how can I combine that with art? And that's really how the kind of more the analytics started to come in, where I started to see that the uh, relatively nascent industry around data was emerging in the art world at the time. We're talking about early millennium years. Yeah, so we're talking early 2000, mm. where both artnets, uh, was listed on the stock exchange, sure. art price the same. Uh, suddenly data was in a digital format rather than sitting in books <coughs> that was coming out yes. on an annual basis. Um, and I've, I thought, okay, this is probably, this, this would be interesting. And I was starting to kind of think about the format of how do I, I mean, I guess it, it partly was driven by the fact I was starting to talk to my former colleagues in the, in the finance industry. And I wondered, you know, in a sense, you know, they have the financial means of, buying art uh, but why didn't they do so and I think there was a sort of a sense of insecurity of how this market worked which at the time um, and, and probably still is to a certain extent but much more um, you know 20 22 years ago was that it was very insular very insider and unless you were on the inside you had really no idea of you know what to buy how to buy how to value things so we thought that maybe the um, the way of, of, of engaging in this case, my colleagues would be to start to introduce uh, a language that they understood, uh, and that was really a, a language around data uh, analytics, which is virtually everything that they did on a professional level, whether it was buying shares or trading stocks and derivatives, whatever it was, um, was based around you know the uh, interpretation of data. Um, mm. So that was my sort of my my initial starting point was to create a language which somehow could try to um, uh, merge or blend the kind of financial, the financial, I guess, population, people with financial backgrounds into the art market. But but there was a bridge that I needed to build. And I guess I'm still, that's probably still what we're doing. I mean, uh, thinking, going back now, I mean, most of the things we are doing, we're using research as a way of informing typically um, a type of stakeholder group or a, or a part of the market about something else on the other side. So whether it's projects that we've been developing with Deloitte, for example, on art and finance, which started around 2009, 
um, it was really about this intersection between the art world and the finance world and none of them had a particularly good understanding of each other in the finance world was very much you know the finance side and the art world was the art side and was really again using information data and education uh, as a way of trying to uh, build that bridge so that people in the art world can have a better understanding of how financial how the financial community private banks family offices and so forth um, could be of you know either assistance or use because partly you know these these um, I guess the finance industry is also kind of a um, a conduit for uh, wealth and, 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 and investment and so forth. Um, and we were thinking how can, so to what extent could we actually get some of that, 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 those, those, that money is kind of channeled into the art market and we realized there was a barrier and the barrier was really around, um, I would say transparency uh, and the lack of transparency. And obviously if you were on the inside of the art world, you had all the information you needed, but immediately you were on the outside, you were, um, there was a huge asymmetry in terms of, uh, of, of information, which, um, which I think, yeah, which, which is still far from being solved. I think it's being addressed more and more, but it's not, um, it, it's, it's, you know, it's still <clears throat> a marketplace that um, I think we, we can characterize as, an, as, a, as a relatively non-transparent in many ways, even if we have seen this sort of digital you know, a revolution or transformation of the last two, three years. Um, so, but so I think we're on a we're on a pathway where we're moving towards a better state than we were twenty years ago. But it's interesting to have seen that sort of this this twenty years um, and in a way how slowly uh, things has moved compared to you know how maybe things has changed in the world at large. So I think you know we're we're um, we're we're still scratching the surface, but there's more people. Then more companies coming into the space, which I think is a great thing because it just shows that there is value in information, there is value in data. And I think um, regardless of what people feel that, you know, data and markets, etc., might, you know, doesn't give an accurate picture of what's happening. And I think a lot of the art world in many ways are afraid of data because it's, it's, it's and, and rightly so in many cases. I think, you know, data is... Um, it's a double-edged sword and I think in one hand it can sort of tell you a one story but it can equally be a, a wrong story I mean, and a lot of the things we're doing which I think it's maybe different from others out there it's it's trying to look behind the data behind the graphs why are things happening um, and be more thorough in in terms of uh, using analytics not to just sell something or invest in something but to try to use data to explain a phenomenon or how things are trending. We're using a lot of qualitative research by talking to people rather than just using market data. And I think that sort of constant dialogue with the market gives you a sort of sense of, uh, or a better sense of how to read the data. Because as I said, things can be read in many different ways, but actually by talking to people, you get a deeper understanding of um, how consensus is building up in the market, the challenges that people are facing. and. And then it's for us to communicate that to the audience at large so that people can start to address these challenges. And a lot of these reports, whether it's the Art and Finance report or the Hiscox Online Art Trade report, has, I think, it also acted as um, kind of tools for the industry to be able to, to, to develop. I mean, without data, it's very hard to raise money. I mean, if you're going to an investor and say, you know, we are building this business, but if you have no data to back that up, it's going to be very difficult to raise money. So I think, you know, in a sense, some of these, I hope that, you know, over the last 20 years that some of this research has actually contributed to companies being able to set up and, uh, and actually, in many cases, address many of the, 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 the friction that exists in the market. Yeah, and I guess, I guess for our students are coming from the opposite direction and meeting you halfway. They're, they're coming mainly with an art historical background. Yeah absolutely totally naive and often innumerate <laughs> we, we, we begin at a very basic level with yeah. when, when we start looking at Excel and how to work Excel and the mathematics of that yeah it's not rocket science as you know but um, it can get quite difficult for some of them you know when you yeah. when you come in and you're you're doing your lectures on um, on correlation and so yeah. on and uh, I, I know some of them struggle a bit with that but uh, I know I know from speaking to them afterwards that they say because because Sanders is involving, he's talking about art and yeah. artists, yeah. and therefore is I I, I want to know I because I love this art, it, it makes me struggle with the maths and overcome it. Mm. Whereas when I was at school, it was all so abstract 
that I just, yeah. my brain just turned off. Yeah. So kind of combining yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. end of it is to understand more about, say, the market for Tracy Emin or whatever. Definitely. It, it, it pushes students towards that goal, I think. Definitely. But I guess that's where those kind of two worlds are, are interestingly meeting. And um, Just to, for listeners, you mentioned those earlier uh, art market databases on Artnet and ArtPrice. And just to explain that, I, I remember when, and Anders will remember this, that, that when suddenly they became more widely available, uh, Artnet and ArtPrice. And, and, and it, it did mean that anybody in the world could subscribe to these databases. And ArtNet, for example, it records all auction, most auction results of art around the world. Yep. That's important, that it's international. Mm-hmm. Uh, because before, you know, I remember in the early 90s, before these databases were available, you had to really be working in the art world to know that, say, a painting had failed to sell in Hong Kong, yep. and then they try they resell it six months later in London, and no one re- did, no one realised that it failed to sell before, yep. or maybe it had sold before, yep. and and they didn't know what price it had sold for. Yep. So there was a real lack of transparency. So at least Artnet gives us that Definitely. kind of information. I, I, that's what Anders is referring to in the in the market becoming more and more transparent. Yeah. Uh, but he also referred to the fact that it's the qualitative material that Art Tactic provides, and and some other uh, platforms provide, and I guess educational courses like ours provide, because you need to also understand that that insider world and the qualitative material, and also yeah. if you like to use the traditional word connoisseurship, that to a certain and that's where our students have strengths because they are coming into this more yeah. business financial world with an understanding of art and aesthetics. Exactly. Um, so really it requires a team of people, yep. um, and, and like a, 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 an investment company, an art investment company will deliberately put people like yourself who understand the analytics together with connoisseurs of contemporary art and so on. No, definitely, and I think, I think that's exactly, I, mean, I think people with you know, a more of an, um, an art history background. Um, this, I mean, it's, it's really, I guess, the course itself, um, the art and business course is, 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 is bringing, again, building the bridge between, you know, different academic backgrounds um, or professional backgrounds. And I think that's, uh, as you mentioned, you know, they might be afraid of dealing with things that looks technical in terms of, you know, dealing with data, but I think immediately you provide a context exactly. to that, then, um, they realize that these are just tools. These are, it could be anything. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter. And, and I think that sometimes in school, I guess you never you never taught context. You taught the tools without necessarily knowing why you should use and how you should use them for the purpose. And I think immediately you come into this level of a, a master and you're about to enter into the, uh, the professional life. I think you're starting to see, I mean, and that's the purpose of both teaching and, and as well as over information. It's really to try to say, you know, how can this be applied to the real life? You know, what is it? How can it be used? And I think that that definitely breaks breaks things down. But I, I, as you say, I think you know data. The importance of understanding a marketplace is a mix between you know understanding the data, but you also need to have an understanding of the you know the actual the art historical aspect, but also even on down to an object level. You know what what makes something more valuable than another. So mm-hmm. this is something we 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 don't we're not experts. In that sense, but what we do have is a um, we have people in our network who has that expertise, exactly. and those are the people that we you know qualitatively go out and talk to, whether that's one to one or through surveys and so forth. So, um, I, I think you know the, the the future of when people talking about AI and, and and so forth. I think you know on one hand, these things are you know interesting and great and can maybe speed up certain processes and make it more efficient to do evaluations of you know maybe lower end works. But I think ultimately the art world needs to have a kind of a human aspect to it. And I think that's, that really is something we always, uh, we're focused on, even if we are data, we are, we are and, and sometimes talk about big data, but I think in the art world, it's often about small data, you know, small, yeah. very valuable uh, data sets, whether it's transaction data or data based on opinions. And, and I, think, I think people working in that, that industry that you came from, yeah. um, that they they have a yearning, I think, for to, to understand to for for that soft aspect, if yeah. we can call it that, that art provides. I think they have a, a yearning to understand a little bit more about that. So your the way in for them is through understanding the finan- yeah. the financial characteristics. Yeah. But in the end, hopefully purchasing works of art and enjoying them. And I remember in one of your lectures a few years ago, you were telling the students about the X factor that that um, you know people can buy a work of art for investment reasons. Mm. 
um, and uh, and you can basically there is no risk because so long as they buy it also because they like it and they understand it it will be hanging on their wall and they have that enjoyment of it even though it may go down in financial value yeah and I guess that's something that art has that say a, a, a gold ingot doesn't have absolutely no and, and it has to I think this is something most people in the art world would probably when they are involved in art there's a very strong emotional component um, to this which I think you know in a sense makes you take more risks and if you're thinking about buying art purely from a kind of risk return perspective obviously these are quite risky undertakings but the risk is kind of compensated by I would say a strong more kind of behavioral uh, emotional aspect which is you know people are involved in this because there's an, there's a sense of an enjoyment whether that's purely from an aesthetic and, and sort of personal uh, point of view or whether it's the scene that um, you 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 become part of. I mean, in a sense, you know, buying art is it's also can be a, a lifestyle thing. It's not necessarily yeah. something you only have on the wall, but it can draw you in to see exhibitions at museum and galleries and go around seeing art fairs and so forth. So I think that component is something that I mean, the most financial assets don't have, and I think that's you know if you're going into this, it's really to ensure that there's a sort of a balance between you know your your personal pleasure that you can derive from buying art um, the social dimension to it and then the financial and I think you know financial is important but I think the danger is uh, when things purely becomes financial um, then I think people then uh, changes uh, the way they think about the art they becoming short term rather than long term and I think you know, if you are ultimately emotionally involved in something time doesn't become an issue you don't you know whether you you don't start to think I need to sell this within three years or five yeah. years you 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 sit on it as long as you like it and maybe at some point in the future you feel that you know your taste maybe has changed and if there's still value you might sell it to buy something else and that that's fine but I think immediately you have a kind of a, a pressure that something needs to be achieved within a certain time frame um, in most often you know they the market will tend to go against you. It shouldn't be so. like that, should it? So, you know, no, primarily, I think you're right that, you know, only only buy this if it's the right, if you can afford it, and it's something that you know you're going to enjoy. Yeah. Um, but it's a different subject, really. But obviously, we also have the notion of, of, of art, as you say, as a lifestyle symbol, a signifier yeah. of a certain lifestyle that people yeah. want to sort of buy yeah. into. Yeah. And um, often those people don't really understand it. So, that, so, so art tactic can advise and explain you know, what yeah. is hot, what's not in a given period, yeah. because that's very important. We, you know, I remember in the new millennium, uh, suddenly you saw big corporate bank lobbies with very recognisable, and yeah. that was important that they were recognisable, Damien Hurst yeah. and Jeff Koons works in their, in yeah. their lobbies, and you, yeah. you see that more and more. What, what I was going to come back to was um, your, your founding of Art Tactic um, coincided really with this, this increasing interest in contempt, buying mm -hmm. contemporary art, but you remember in the 90s and 80s, no one was really doing that. It was a very close shot. It's yep. highly intellectual, yep. uh, exclusive, mm -hmm. really difficult to get into. And then suddenly with the opening of Tate Modern mm -hmm. and the YBAs, mm -hmm. the Young British Arts in London, it became much more accessible. Definitely. And that, you were kind of quite lucky, I think, yeah. starting at Art Tactic, yeah. which tends to deal primarily, if I may say, with contemporary art world, although your art market reports to yeah. old masters as yeah. well and other yeah. markets. But maybe you could talk more about the way Art Tactic developed alongside that increasing interest in contemporary art. Yeah, I think there was something interesting, I think, with um, contemporary art, which was um, the kind of dynamic nature of, of the marketplace. So if mm. you took an older, um, if you took an old master market or an impressionist market, I think those artists in generally had already been um, kind of written into the history books as, you know, the major artists. So there was more than about the actual individual artworks that found itself the auction sometimes you know very few but um, it became as a more of a kind of connoisseurship approach and the value was very much attached to the objects which is obviously that was linked to the artist but the artist itself was already established um, I think the interesting thing with um, with the contemporary was that it was a kind of a fluid mm. uh, following an artist from the early stages and see how the career progressed and how things changed and I think that made it, from a research perspective, made it interesting because it was uh, something that could be updated. It was something that could be uh, regularly um, coming back to this market and look at what has changed from the last year. Uh, it was interesting to look at how different, how value was influenced by different factors. So not only by time and how history has kind of gradually um, 
endorsed or validated an artist, but actually how individual players within the art market, in a sense, changed the, um, the, the notion of what was a, a valuable artist or, or, or an artist that was you know, you know, actually sort of kind of moving towards maybe a state where they're going to be commercially successful. And I think that sort of drove me into starting to look at the art market more as, a, as an ecosystem of influencers, tastemakers, uh, which allowed me to actually starting to think more strategically about, about how does this whole thing work? You know, who influences what? What does it mean that someone is um, bought by a certain collector or picked up by a certain gallery? And these are really the kind of information, if you thought from the financial world, uh, you know, these are the kind of the drivers of value, future value. And, and there's that element of risk which yeah. will attract someone in the financial world as yeah. well. The speculation is a turn on. Yeah, and, uh, but need, and, and definitely. And I think there was a dynamic there where, you know, you see that same thing with startups. And, you know, in the beginning, virtually the entire value of the company is based on some kind of future success. Um, but obviously, until that happens, there's a lot of uncertainty. But at the same time, uh, and that's a similar thing with a young artist or, or an artist in the early stages of the career. Uh, it's that we don't really know where this is going. And, but the dynamic nature of more and more um, stakeholders involving themselves in this market just means that you can start to read kind of a, that there's a kind of, a, as I said earlier, a kind of consensus approach that is taking place. So it's for us, again, from a... Um, from an analytical point of view, it was trying to then use this qualitative element of talking to state stakeholders mm. because a lot of this, this information was not in the public domain. Yep, and, and, and you you have your confid, confid, confidence confidence ratings. Yeah. Um, could you maybe you could talk a little bit? Yeah, about so, that well. so the confidence survey was something yeah. we started in two thousand and five, and it was exactly the I realized I came into this market with not having access to the insider aspect of it, and I needed to try to figure out how do we. How do we find that information? How do we aggregate that information? How do we collect that information? And that uh, was something that has that that we spent well between two thousand and one when we started and two thousand and five four years for building up a network of people that was willing to share information mm. with us, and they shared it on the basis that they felt that to have a medium which could be anonymous but and neutral and where they could submit their opinions and benchmark that against other people's opinion uh, was a valuable thing. Now, obviously, there was uh, the reason why it took four years was that if we, we went to galleries and we talked about what we wanted to do, but people say, you know, why should we share that information? Mm. This is highly privileged information. Because you then have access to see what you your competitors are yeah, doing. Or, and you have, or, are, or even yeah. you have access to, to know maybe what we think about certain artists. Yeah. And, they, and they're anonymous, aren't they, they're as well, anonymous. which is attractive. They're yeah. anonymous. Um, yeah. So we started, I mean, initially, we, we uh, to get this off rolling, we... Um, we, we got um, a collector in Miami to kind of uh, help us, uh, I guess, build that initial sample, which ended up with about 30 collectors in this case. Fantastic. Uh, so we didn't go to the trade, we went to the collectors, but over time people were starting to, now we've been running this for 17 years, um, it's now a, a mix of art advisors, uh, some are media, art market commentators, there are uh, um, auction houses, there are collectors, there's a mix of what we call different stakeholders representing different um, geographical regions. And, and the purpose of this is not to sort of say, well, here is, you know, here is the top artists uh, this month, because it changes every month. And yeah. the reason why it changes is that people obviously react differently to news that is being released during the six-month period. So an artist may be one... One month, people think uh, very positively about that particular market. So it's not about, obviously, when you say positive, it's not about the personality of the artist. It's about the marketplace. But uh, um, but the, the following six months, things might have changed. And they might have changed because people have observed something that happened at auction. They might have observed that the fact that they, there was an exhibition that maybe was... Um, had negative reviews, whatever it is, or positive, whatever. So, so and, and, and I think I believe the correct term for that sentiment that is borrowed yeah, exactly. again from the business world yeah, and applied exactly. to So it's a sentiment which we which we try to again. It's not a we, you know the art world is very much around individual voices uh, that you know whether it's a journalist saying something or whether it's a collector that says mm. something that becomes the kind of the leading. Mm. Um, you know the, the leading guidance for what people are going to think. A bit like Prince Charles commenting on 
yeah. Rwanda or yeah. whatever <laughs> yeah, it has, yeah, a bit, I, has a lot of influence yeah on the way it has a lot think. of influence and in the art world obviously there are these key tastemakers and influences do have an, an, Sarchi an, being yeah. a good example exactly so we, we thought um, that actually aggregating these voices into something more of a, a continuum where we knew that not everyone's going to think the same but you know mm. was there a um, was there a sort of a weight sort of towards one yeah. aspect or the other and um, that allowed us just to generally on one hand on an analytical level to layer the information that we saw with something else so that you could see a progression in the market you could see the trends in the market but then we had the kind of what do people think about these mm. trends um, so that was that was the kind of the the starting point and then we obviously using the same network in terms of uh, you know gathering intelligence uh, we would reach out to to, to different people regarding if we do an, a research on a particular artist, try to find out what's going on, going beyond <clears throat> behind the scenes. And that's what makes art tactics so useful is that, you know, my students often say, yeah, we've got this graph and it, yeah. we've got this index for yeah. this artist or this group of artists, yeah. but what's it really saying? We want the insider information. Yeah. So that aspect of art tactic does give you that insider yeah. information across sort of internationally, because it gives you the sentiment of the big art, yeah. art world players. Can you say a little bit about when did you develop your the kind of gamification idea, uh, where you have this art forecaster on your on your platform, which enables people to play this game based on the real auction yep. world? Do you want to talk about when yeah, that sure. was introduced and who plays it and what any tips for how you get good at it? Yeah, no. Well, well, so the, I guess yeah. The, so the art forecaster, for those who are unfamiliar with it, is a um, it's a it's a forecasting platform which is sort of built into kind of a gamification way where you have each week you have a we call them quizzes where people are uh, you know, predicting hammer prices and live auctions um, and when you get it right you will turn this turns into a rank it turns into a certain score mm. and so forth uh, it started actually mm. when we started here I mean, at Solibus Institute um, in I think it was 2015 when I, um, I was teaching on the summer course and we were talking about market analysis and value um, and to kind of make it a little bit more interesting, there was these summer sales were taking place in London uh, early July, and we thought, okay, well, why don't we, 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 we pick uh, X number of lots from this, uh, this auction, and everyone in the class um, can then predict what they think is, you know, these things going to sell for. Um, I think the interesting thing about it was that it really it stimulated uh, a certain interest in actually then applying the tools, coming back to the thing of using analytics to for something purposeful. So the theory that I've been teaching prior to that was suddenly put into practice because people now wanted to to kind of be the best forecaster or they want to predict what was what, what was happening. So it it changed my way of, of, of kind of structuring the course to embed this more kind of playful gamification way into the uh, into the course to make 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 things more uh, provide a new context and for people to actually play with these tools so that um, basically then subsequently because of just the manual na nature of how that was uh, conducted was I mean it was very time consuming and I thought okay maybe we can do this in a more uh, easier more sort of uh, setting up a, a website which calculates these things etc automatically so that became basically the art forecaster platform mm. and it's been running now for six seven years it's mm -hmm. um and it's for me it's it's got two things one it's a uh, an educational tool because it allows people to practice um, it's also actually for a lot of people a lot of the professionals are playing i think some people are kind of got slightly addicted to to, to playing, uh, maybe both from a kind of competitive aspect, but also from the fact that they we dip into smaller section of an auction sale. Mm. Um, it allows people to kind of take, a, again, a bet or a, um, a view on something. And then immediately when the auction has happened and the quizzes are marked, you will get your sort of feedback, you know, and you can sort of think, oh God, I got this wrong. Mm. Um, which maybe from a professional point of view, you might sort of help calibrate you know where you think values are around certain things. So you think that certain, you know, the, the Marilyn Monroe that sold for 170 million, uh, that that you know would have sold much more, for example. Or and then if it didn't, well, what what does that mean? And obviously, if you just read the headlines in the newspaper and say, well, this is a record amount, then you you would say, well, okay, it's a record amount. The the, the world market's on fire. 
Um, but if you had thought a little bit more about it, you would probably seen that there were other prices, for example, that had been achieved in the private market up to 250 million prior. So there was an anticipation in this community when we when we launched that quiz with that lot inside it that people thought it was going to sell much more. Now, for that, for, for, for the individuals, that doesn't, that's more of kind of, you, you got it right or wrong, but for us as uh, a data uh, provider, uh, it helps us also to, to have a realized value to see what actually things sold for, but what the community of forecasters that has been doing this for six, seven years yeah. thought about that particular thing. So the fact that it was a record price and everyone you know, talked about it as that, uh, and it is obviously the case, um, there was a lot of people who anticipated it was going to sell much more. And I think for us, that's obviously an extreme case. But in generally, we're using also, from our point of view, the crowd as a almost like a kind of a, a juxtaposition to the reality. So in the sense, something sells for a certain price. Now, what did the crowd think it's going to sell for? Yes. And if it sells for what the crowd thought it was going to sell for, you could sort of argue that, okay, this is within a kind of a, a consensus. If it's sold for less or above, then maybe there is a, some kind of um, adjustment that is taking place in the market. So we're using crowdsourcing again, similar to do with survey, but actually this is done in more from a kind of, um, through a, a, a gamification platform. So it has the educational aspect. It has, I think, something which allows people to, to train themselves and to look into different categories, everything from photography to limited edition prints to old <clears throat> masters to impressionist, modern, contemporary, all different aspects. Um, but take an active view on something. It's very easy to be a passive uh, observer in the art world and just read the headlines and sort of not think too much about it. But I think it's important that we question value, that we understand mm. value. Um, and this this game is really kind of the the kind of maybe one of the tools that we used for that purpose so mm -hmm. so that's uh, that's that's where we are and that's you know for us it's kind of building that community uh, and we have you know ideas about well, what we want to do going forward regarding mm -hmm. that and I think that's uh, and I, I think you have fortunes not just for contemporary you do some of the other sectors as yes. well yeah, yeah which is which yeah. is useful and uh, um, we're going to have this discussion. We're probably going to put this gamification idea with Art Forecaster into the program next into the Art Business program next year, because we because of what Anders has just said that it's a really really good way to learn about certain aspects of the market and to reflect on them. It's not a it's not about being ashamed if you get it wrong or yeah, at no. the bottom of the league. Exactly. It's a learning curve, like any. So it's kind of education on that level. Definitely, and that's why yeah. I think you know people who play you know, shouldn't be too obsessed about you know getting things wrong. I think it's <clears throat> As I mentioned earlier, I think there's a kind of a calibration. I mean, value isn't something, value in art isn't something static. It's mm. not something that, you know, you can just say yeah. this is what it is. It yeah. keeps moving. Yeah. There's so many different um, elements and so many different sort of moving parts that ultimately decides what the outcome of an of a price at auction would be. And mm. I think by actually using the game, you're starting, if you, you obviously have to play more than once, but the more you play, the more you're starting to see the dynamic. You begin to probably get better, improve Absolutely. as well. I mean, and it could be anything from very simple things like, you know, the way that lots are sequenced. And you know, mm. you, if there are, if one of these lots are in the first one, you know, the first three or four lots, you're likely to that he's going to sell pretty well because the auction yeah. houses likes to kick off the auction at a good note. And, uh, on a positive way so so you know the more you play the more you learn the more you play you the more sort of kind of historical baggage you have I and mean, you obviously have so basically the game uh, saves all everything that you you have done on a particular artist so obviously when you play you could look back in history and say oh god you know i tend to get these wrong all the time because i think it's going to sell more than it you normally does um so why don't I now calibrate and become a little bit more conservative? Mm -hmm. And then maybe you get it right. Maybe you could still get it there's right. There's an element of luck in exactly. this. Exactly. There's, there's obviously an element of yeah. luck, but there are, I would say there is, the people that have been playing a lot has developed a sort of a sense, almost like a kind of a market, kind of a gut Definitely. feel, you know, yeah. for, for what value is. And, and, and if it does nothing else, it, it, will, it will train you to, to see what the values are. Yeah. You know, it's just a good way also seeing what these are estimated oh, at. Estimate auction estimates usually based on comparable objects from yeah. previous auctions. Yeah. Um, but I love. I didn't realize that. Of course, you can use that. You can you as architect yeah. can use all of that feedback yeah. as a way of seeing that all of these people predicted it wrongly. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Um, the other thing I was going to ask you is: Do you know what kind of 
our, our world players, the people who are really who are top of the league are. I kind of expect them to be people in the auction departments because they have insider information to a certain extent. They know that there's likely to be a lot of underbidders. It's interesting. So we had a we, we had a lot of auction um, people involved, and and, and still, um, I think they they they. It's interesting because we had we, we looked at some of the, the, the top players, and they have they're very good at um, actually predicting outcomes of other auctions. Uh, so oh. the competitors' auctions, okay. and you would think that because of their maybe privileged knowledge about mm. their own auction, is that I think there's also something inherent in terms of um, you know sales. I mean, ultimately you want that that auction yeah. to be successful, yeah. and then trying then to kind of put a, a, an absolutely neutral price on something that you maybe feel it's a bit maybe it's a bit overvalued or maybe the estimates is too high, but by but obviously you've been talking about this to your clients about trying to sell this work. So, so I think there's also sort of thing that people are probably biased regarding their own auctions yeah. and are maybe positively hoping in that it's actually going to do better than it maybe ultimately does. Yes. While they're much more, um, I would say, so almost kind of surgical, clinical when it comes to actually predicting other people's auction because they can take a much more objective view and say, you know. So it's not necessarily an advantage. No, I, th I think that, I think that, I think it looks like people yeah. are flavoured by the fact that they, yeah. they they strongly hope and hopefully believe that their own auctions are doing well. So to do to kind of put down the prediction, which is the opposite, um, it's kind of counterintuitive. Even, even if they're, even if that might, you know, they would have done so if it was someone else's auction. And I, I remember taking some students to a preview a few years ago at the Modern British Art uh, Auction, and uh, there was a work there. Just trying to remember who it was. Can't remember at the moment. Um, but the 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 specialist was saying. We know this is going to sell well because uh, because students were asking this question quite rightly uh, because we 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 have um, you know VIP collectors that have all been asking us about this so we know it's going to go there's going to be a lot of underbidders it's going to raise the value it it completely flopped and um, next time we saw the the specialists they said we asked them and they said it sometimes happens just for some reason no one we don't know what the reason was but none of those people turned up to bid yeah. No, exactly. And, and so there's a lot of just general, you know, human beings. Definitely. You know, it's like predicting the winner, winner in Royal Ascot, yeah, the, the, or the Derby. Yeah, you know, these are these are horses. We're human beings yeah. in the art world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things can go wrong. You just don't feel well that evening, and you know, yeah, everyone that everyone else pulls out. Often these people know one another. Oh, I'm not so sure now, and and it spreads. Yeah, no, it does, and that's a very. <laughs> there's a lot of human elements definitely. involved, and just yeah. I think there's a lot of psychology and a lot of yeah. behavioral aspects of auction, and that's often it's kind of a. It, it has that sort of theatrical experience, uh, which I think is absolutely you know why things sell. I mean, how the auctioneer can, you know, create competitive yeah. bidding by setting people up against each other, yeah. um, but also how quickly that 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 sort of sense sentiment of positiveness can turn if things yeah. doesn't sell. So that's obviously, again, the way that these sales, particularly if you're talking about the sort of marquee evening sales a very much a curated way of trying to ensure that you know the, the rhythm of the auction are going in a certain way to maintain <clears throat> the momentum. Mm. Um, so all, all things which seems like maybe all randomly put in the, into the catalogue and into certain sequence, I mean these things are carefully thought Definitely, through to, yeah. to ensure that. Students are often surprised when they first go to an auction preview and they've got the catalogue or we used to have the catalogue, yeah. used to have our copies, we don't anymore, or they're, they're used, looking at them on their smartphones. Yeah. That they're, that they're not displayed in the order of the auction and yeah. then we can teach them that yeah. it's a very different thing. The display is an aesthetic display. It's almost yeah. like recreating a, yeah. an art gallery exhibition. Yeah. Um, whereas the, the, the lots are actually carefully thought through in terms of the sentiment through the rhythms of the auction. Definitely. Yeah. And as you say, that becomes a point that you, that you learn about when you're doing art forecasts. Yeah, there's one of the things yeah. I think you're starting to pick up after a while. Yeah. Uh, Which know, lot number is this? Exactly, know? where where is it in the sequence? Um, mm. so, so, that, so those are the things is I think, you know, the value is, uh, is something that's determined by so many different factors. And yeah. the more you're starting to establish what these factors are, the more intuitive, I guess, valuable mm. becomes. Absolutely. So, so a lot of understanding the art world, I think, maybe as a, a, a takeaway for... Yeah. For our listeners, is it really is that uh, you can you can get the tools from from Ant from Art Tactic and, and and learn get more knowledge from yeah. that and more insider knowledge. Um, listen to the podcasts as well from Art World players; they're yeah. brilliant. Um, and um, play Art 
the forecaster. Yeah, no, exactly. The more you do, the more you learn. And yep. this is all about, that's what makes it such fun and so um, worthwhile, is it's all about your, into, the, the more you put into it, the more you get out of it, exactly. I think. Exactly. And I think this is really the only way, you know, for those who's looking at the career and the art world, I mean, you've got to immerse yourself. It's not Absolutely. That, that world is not going to come to you. You have to go out there and... But um, at least it's a nice world to, yeah, to yeah, immerse yourself yes. into. Exactly. No, definitely. <laughs> exactly. And that's, that's, I think, the reason why we're all here. Anyway, and there's, a, there's probably a lot more we could talk about. Maybe in a year or so we could do another of these, an update. Great. But thank you very, very much for sharing your, 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 your life story to a certain extent, but also your, your motives for going into coming into the art world and developing this, um, this wonderful art tactic platform. Um, just to say to people, I think Art Forecaster, for people who don't know Art Tactic, um, I think some parts of it are subscription only, but there's quite a lot of useful material there that isn't subscription. Um, art Forecaster is, uh, is yeah, free, but, it's free. Uh, but yeah. Art Tactic itself has, uh, and podcasts are free, the editorial is free. Um, um, but the Art Forecaster is a totally free platform, yeah, so yeah, there's no nothing exactly. gated yeah. there at all. So yeah. you, yeah, will have So just, just go and do it. Get on, get on to it. <laughs> Okay, well, um, thank you very much again, Anders, and um, look forward to seeing you in the future. Thanks, David. Okay, bye.